The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Conscious Evolution Radio with your host, Ann Gelsheimer. We are entering higher levels of consciousness with both old and new spiritual technologies to help us be the people we've always dreamed of being. We can make the choice to evolve in consciousness and become the change the world needs today. Now, here is Ann Gelsheimer. Hello, this is Ann Gelsheimer and welcome to Conscious Evolution Radio. Today we have a wonderful guest. I'm so excited. His name is Jason Gregory. And Jason is a spiritual traveler, a philosopher and practitioner of internal arts and esoteric health. For several years, Jason has lived and studied in Asia with the students and masters of the varying sects of Buddhism, Gnosticism, Aramedic philosophy, Hinduism, and Taoism. In those years, Jason has searched ashrams, monasteries, and temples in some of the most remote places of the world to gain insight and inspiration from that common wisdom within all spiritual traditions. Jason's also an internationally renowned author, filmmaker, teacher, and worldwide speaker specializing in the fields of Eastern and Western philosophy, comparative religion, spiritual traditions, metaphysics, and ancient cultures. Based on his research, Jason has published two books and created one documentary. Jason wrote and and directed the online documentary presentation called The Sacred Sound of Creation. And he's also the author of the cult classic Way of the Weirdo. I love that title. His newest book, The Science and Practice of Humility, The Path to Ultimate Freedom, has been very well received and will be the main focus of our conversation today. I'm so pleased to have a chance to talk with Jason about his insights and research into the science and practice of humility. Just to give my listeners a bit of context, I'm also a student of many traditions and have been very influenced by the spiritual writer and master, Thomas Merton, who understood the importance of humility, simplicity, and the practice of contemplation without form or images. When I was looking over Jason's new book, I was so impressed to see that he's bringing forward to a new generation of readers this deep understanding of the wisdom traditions. Jason, welcome to Conscious Evolution Radio. That's great to be on, Anne. Thank you for the wonderful intro. Oh, you're so welcome, and thank you. I think you you stayed up late for us to, to to be on the show. Where are you right now, and what time is it? Well, it's it's ten thirty five p.m. now. Uh, I'm in Tiruvannamalai in South India, um, and for those people who are unfamiliar with that, that's they if they know the the great twentieth century Hindu saint Ramana Maharishi, that's where uh, he lived, and and the uh, the sacred mountain, Aaron. So that's kind of the the essence of this place where I'm at the moment. But look, 10.30 is okay for me. I've, I've done interviews at four in the morning because I'm usually <laughs> here, there and everywhere. So. Oh, that's very kind. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Well, your, your history is so fascinating. Um, honestly, you've lived the life I'd love to live, you know, in the travels, the spiritual travels that you've done. I wonder mm-hmm. if you would share with our listeners your own, yeah, I'm sorry, I understand it's an edited version, but a, a summary of your personal journey that's led up to writing this wonderful book. Yeah, my life's pretty much, uh, my childhood and everything was pretty much like any average individual. I, I grew up in a, a middle-class family. Um, we weren't, my parents were not uh, religious or spiritual in any manner, but they were, you know, honest people and they worked hard and provided for their family. And basically when I left home as an adult, I, I, can, you know, I, I suppose you could say I continued um, with that sort of conditioning until I started traveling with my wife. And then 
basically I haven't I haven't looked back. Like as soon as I stepped foot in Asia, um, I've been studying a lot of the wisdom traditions since that time, which is about seven years ago. But, but prior to that, I was always interested in alternative stuff. Growing up, my my father was always a bit of a conspiracy theorist, you could say. So I, I learned a lot from him about the alternative um, perspective of life. So that kind of, you could say, uh, tilled the soil a little in my mind. So, you know, coming over here with a fresh mindset, I could really dive into a lot of the philosophies, especially of the East uh, and in some context, uh, Western esotericism. So, you know, and then just in those travels, I've basically lived over here, learned how to trust a lot more and, and basically writing was something that sort of flowered in that process. So writing and teaching actually was something that flowered in that process and I'm grateful for that. So that's kind of, you know, in a, in a nutshell, that's about my, my journey. But there's, there's a lot of experiences along, along the way that sort of um, – directed my attention more inward, you could say. Now, could you give us an idea of some of the traditions you've taken a look at um, and, and perhaps some of the teachers that you've had? No, definitely, yeah. Most of the traditions I've, I've looked at, like um, basic, the basic philosophy I, I started learning um, was actually Advaita Vedanta a while back, which is basically the practice of self-inquiry, um, which Ramana Maharishi uh, taught, but it, but is actually an actual philosophy of Hinduism. Um, that, with also Zen and Taoism, kind of the the foundation of my my thought um, and my practice. But outside of that, um, you know, I have a love obviously for <clears throat> Mahayana and Theravada Buddhism, and also um, Hermeticism and Gnosticism over in the Middle East. Um, and basically, uh, a lot, especially when you look at hermeticism and Gnosticism, there's not many masters living these days that no. really teach that. No. So there's, I learned a lot from obviously people who are not with us no more. So from reading their books and, and whatnot, but being in Egypt and that being in that sort of environment, you learn a bit about it, but not so much. So um, some of the masters that were influential with me were, I, I guess, in the Advaita tradition was Muji, if, if you know Muji. Um, I've, I've heard of Muji. Yeah, you've heard of Muji. He's, he's a, a, a Jamaican, he's an Advaita teacher. He's a, he's a Jamaican, um, he, lives, he used to live in England, but now he lives in Portugal. Um, Sadhguru in South India here. Um, and also ones that, uh, you know, obviously different sorts of lamas and Rinpoches in uh, northern India and also a lot of people who are not, not with us no more. Like I've, I've been deeply influenced, you could say, by Alan Watts and Joseph Campbell, who most of the listeners are probably familiar with. Right. But also, but also um, even William Walker Atkinson, who, who used to teach uh, a lot of hermeticism and that when he was alive, um, I've been deeply influenced by. So, you know, to, in, you know, in the, in the whole label of master is even, it's a difficult one because, you know, you, know, you yourself, Anne, as a master, you know, you can learn from anyone, anything really, basically. So my, some of the greatest teachings that I've ever had is just from living over in, in the East and being in a culture that's completely different than Australia where I was born. But, yeah, you could say some of the, the living masters, you know, obviously I've been influenced by mainly it was by Muji, uh, Sadhguru, and and basically they were the two main ones. So that was the ones who sort of uh, led me back more towards um, self-inquiry, understandings of yoga, understandings of even what we perceive as the principle of the universe. So, they, you know... It's, it's hard for me to, to remember. There's been so many experiences oh, that, I've, that sure. I've had. It's a very mm. rich, rich experiences that you've had. I was really excited that you've studied from so many different traditions because I really feel that's so valuable in bringing forward what's universal. And, you know, then people can then take from that without feeling they have to convert to one particular tradition or another. Yeah, definitely. But like, I, 
I feel a benefit of, you know, I call it comparative mysticism of studying all of them because the thing is if you don't really have a, you could say, a belief structure or a set that or a set of beliefs or a kind of an ideology that you follow, then you can really open up to, you can actually, those, if you have a mindset like that, you can dive into the, I believe you can dive into the wisdom traditions uh, with much more clarity and you can see a lot deeper into uh, a lot of the philosophy and the spirituality that underlies them. And, you know, that's why I say a lot of the greatest teachers, especially the ones who aren't with us now, were, were they came from that sort of, um, way of thinking as well where they dived into a philosophy and they could write about like for example Alan Watts he wrote The Way of Zen and though he wasn't a Zen Buddhist he like out of all of the Zen literature I've read that's probably one of the the key pieces of literature to understand Zen but he wrote it from an outsider's perspective and you know like what you said is, is to have that you don't have to have a set um, you don't have to call yourself a Buddhist or a Christian or whatever you can step into the field of the wisdom traditions and and keep an open mind and continue to be receptive and, and learn from them along the way. And, you know, that's basically what I've done. And a lot of other people are doing that in the world now too. So, And I think, I think that's really helpful for our listeners because I know many people have asked me the difference, you know, between religion and spirituality. And this is not to uh, knock any uh, religion at all, but for some people, they don't feel a kinship with a particular religion for whatever reason, but they're deeply spiritual people. And so what you're describing here really is a path of a spiritual seeker who can dip into the different traditions and allow themselves to be transformed. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, we've got to remember that there's still a growing aspect of our of our consciousness that, that it, you know, is growing. So, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, I don't want to put down religion in any way, but people who are set have a set belief structure kind of stop that free flow of growth that we all we all innately have. But, you know, a lot of people, you know, we you would see this in America with Christianity where a lot of people who are Christian, um, they cease their growth, you could say, consciously because they have sort of a mindset of that they've already worked uh, the, even the universe out. They already they know everything. So, you know, this is kind of uh, a, a common temperament in the world that a lot of people have. And basically when you dive in with no preconceived idea about how the universe or how life is in general, you're very receptive and very open and willing to learn and willing to grow, you know, with how however the chips may fall. And, you know, that's the way I've seen it. Now, I know some of the traditions that um, teach in a particular way, I'm thinking, for instance, of Tibetan Buddhism that I'm quite familiar with, they talk about the tradition as a vehicle or, if you like, a boat that you take to get to the shore of enlightenment <laughs> and then you don't need the boat anymore. But for someone who's not necessarily wanting to get into the, any one particular boat, do you have any advice in uh, in terms of just not getting lost because there's so much out there to be looked at? Yeah, definitely. And and I can understand what you're saying there because a lot of people do get lost. They do, I, I guess, they go to the, the other extreme where they try to study everything at once. And, and that's kind of, that'll just... I would say complex. It, it'll just make your whole psyche too complex. You won't be able to, to understand things deeply. So I'd say that you know, if you are naturally engaged uh, towards, say, let's say Taoism, for example, if you, if you have an interest in Taoism, explore it until it's until you've you've, ex, you've exhausted its uh, resonance with you, you know, and then move on to whatever. Else there is there's a, there's a whole flow that goes about this as too uh, about this as well because you know the the way or the Tao we could say is the flow of the universe and and that also um, corresponds to acquiring wisdom and, and knowledge so if we don't have a set sort of understanding of you know how we are going to gain this wisdom or how we are going to gain this knowledge then we would just sort of flow with life how how it is. And then I think if you have a sort of simple mindset like that, you won't pollute yourself with too many traditions and trying to work out how this corresponds with that. You'll you'll have sort of you'll you'll be dipping into this and that or 
in a in a timely manner. That makes so much sense because there, when you do give yourself to the what life is teaching you, there is a flow. There is almost a, like a, a natural intelligence that guides. You could think of it as a spiritual intelligence that guides. Some people call it the inner guru. <laughs> well, that's true. It's true. It is, it, it is the inner guru, and that's why I mentioned. You know, the most common word for it is the Tao. Is the way of the Tao. Is yes, which basically which basically means the way of the universe. But other other words are, you know, again, divine guidance and all of these these other um, words that we use. And, you know, again, when you start to refine your consciousness, when you start to look within, what basically happens is the inner and outer worlds begin to sort of, you could say, merge or, or begin to commingle. And what happens then is that the phenomena that we know as synchronicity and, um sorry, the phenomenon known as synchronicity begins to take place a lot more in your life because you've started to refine your consciousness, um, work on yourself, and then the merging of the inner and outer worlds takes place. And that's sort of where the the guidance of the universe begins to take place. But, you know, the guidance doesn't always mean that it's going to be a pleasant experience. You know, pain is also a part of this world. And because because pain and fear themselves can, can teach you a lot of things. So, you know, a lot of people don't take – a lot of people, I, I mean, they get frustrated with synchronicities because sometimes synchronicities are cruel, but, you know, it's something to we're, – we're learning here. We have a learning aspect of ourselves, but we're always connected to the universe, and this is kind of the paradox that we live with. That's a perfect place to, to for us to pause because we're going to go into a commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to get right into your book. And I, I'm just so excited to do that. So this is Anne Gelsheimer with Conscious Evolution Radio, and we will be back. is the 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support you. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. You are tuned in to Conscious Evolution Radio, and we love to hear from you. Please send any questions or comments about the show via email to ConsciousEvolutionRadio at gmail.com. Again, that's ConsciousEvolutionRadio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. And this is Ann Gelsheimer with Conscious Evolution Radio. And today we're speaking with Jason Gregory. 
and we're talking about perennial wisdom. We're talking about spirituality and the path of the seeker and, and the natural wisdom that, that can arise. Now, Jason has written a book called The Science and Practice of Humility, The Path to Ultimate Freedom. And I have to tell you, I was so struck by your choice of the word or the concept humility, because that is not a popular concept at this time in the West. Although, when we go back far enough into the roots of all the major spiritual traditions, it was essential. Tell me about how you came to value and and want to bring forward this idea of humility. Well, basically, I saw the the virtue of, of the masters, not only that I, 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 I know or, and the ones that I've learned, um, learned from that aren't with us no more, but basically that they have this sort of humility that's, it's almost cosmic in nature. It's, it sort of transcends, uh, relative boundaries because it has the power to transform not only just a couple of people, it has the power to transform a whole society. And, you know, I see this in, this in the town that I'm in at the moment, uh, Tiruvannamalai, where Ramana Maharishi, he lived uh, a humble existence um, his whole life. And he had this sort of cosmic humility that it, it's basically transformed this whole town that we live in now. He's not with us no more, but the essence of him, the aroma of him is still here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this, and this humility shouldn't be confused with also the unctuousness of uh, – uh, Uriah Heap from Charles Dickens, where it's you know it's not sort of a a humility that is um, you know over nice or or anything like that. It's kind of something that it's something that just naturally grows. You know, I, I say in the book, it, it's something that grows just like naturally grows just like hair. <laughs> so it's something that just comes into your consciousness. And you know, I explored this not only through the masters, I explored this through the way that even music transforms people, the way that someone who is very humble in nature can transform um, someone's arrogance, arrogant perception of them into a much more innocent perception of them. And, you know, this is why I call it a science in the book because, you know, humility is in, in a sense, like if we look at, you know, Lao Tzu's knowledge of the Tao is, is basically that when you look at water, you know, as an analogy, water takes the lowest line, uh, it, it goes to the lowest spots in, in nature, right. but it's the most powerful force in nature. So it's a paradox. So it, it seeks the low places, but at the same time, it has the power and the force to transform all of nature because without water, you know, where is existence? We don't have any existence. So humility is basically functions the same. Now tell us if you wouldn't mind about, uh, perhaps about Ramana Maharishi a little bit more of what was it like to be in the presence of such a humble being? Well, I, I was never, um, because he, I, I mean, like I, I, he died in 1950. So oh, okay. I'm so saying, sorry. I didn't realize yeah. that. <laughs> But you must have you must have been um, in the presence of some other living masters. Could you describe any of those? Well, Muji, for example, when I've spent time with him, actually, he was one of the reasons that the book. Uh, he was one of the inspirations, actually, for the book because he said once that um, to look at because you know how we always have sort of a negative connotation towards fear. He said, actually, fear is a great thing because fear continues to humble us and it's humility that we are seeking. So fear is sort of a trigger that keeps knocking us down from my pedestal, keeps bringing us back to the ground of our being. So he was actually an inspiration for that. But to be in the presence of someone like him was is uh, pretty powerful. You know, there's certain things, I, I guess, that you find around each master. You know, I don't want to blow up. I don't want to put them on a pedestal um, because there's a lot of things that do, does happen around a master that's kind of you, you might turn your nose up at. And it's true, like the, it can get a little bit, um, I don't know, airy-fairy. But apart from that, if you get time to spend with them by themselves, it's, it's a pretty powerful experience, just the, the humility they live. And they don't have – you could say that they don't have an opinion. There's not – a there's no preconceived notions about how reality should be. They just let reality be as it is because that's the way it is. So 
you know, to have an agenda, to have an opinion in a sense kind of causes friction in this world and we're living that. And I guess that being in the presence of a master, say, like Muji, um, he doesn't have an agenda or you could say an opinion on, on certain matters. I know from my own experience with a couple of Tibetan Buddhist masters, um, th- they present very simply. They have an incredible sense of humor. Um, it's just a delight to be around them. And when they're not in teaching mode, and they, they are so good to everybody around them. I have to say, I mean, I'm thinking of two in particular. One of my teachers is Azep Rinpoche, but also Geshe Kelsang Gyatso. And they, mm. it was really quite amazing to be in their presence and feel both the gentleness, the kindness, and, but very down to earth, you know, just, mm. just, you know, the, you could just have a conversation with them like you could anybody else, but yet they were profoundly realized. Yeah, definitely. And, th- and that's what it is, Dan. That's the naturalness that they, that they all exude, you could say, all of, and, you know, I, I know I've spent a lot of time in northern India, so I know a lot of Tibetan monks and masters, and, and they all, not all of them, but some of them have that, they exude that sort of humility that sort of transcends, you know, uh, the relative uh, concepts of opinions and, and agendas. And, you know, like you said, they have a certain humor about them that's, you know, it's very innocent also in nature. You know, it's kind of like when we look at, um, the great Taoist sage Zhuangzi, he he himself was he probably embodied that sort of real clever humor, but it, at the same time it was very profound and in in a, in a sense that even the humor is teaching you, even the naturalness of the the humor and the and the laughter that these masters have does teach people as well. So in your book, um, you talked about the science of uh, humility. And I'd love you to say a bit more about why science, because most people hearing that word will have probably a different understanding than what you were intending. (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. Well, basically, like I said, with the water analogy, that kind of uh, itself in itself is a science, but we have to sort of change our, also our perception of science because, you know, we think of um, experimentation uh, methods of, Measurement when we think of science, especially of matter and reality. But when we talk about consciousness, you know, we have to really look into um, the origins of the word science. When we get back into Latin, when you get into um, scientia, which means actually knowledge, and um, also backflipped onto that is scura, which means to know. So Basically, those two Latin words means uh, knowledge and to know, but the the real the real you could say the definition of science, which is you know this is also not only my own belief, but it's a lot of other people's belief, is in the in the other Latin word which is omniscien, which means you know having complete or ultimate knowledge and 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 an awareness of all things. And this is kind of the science that I'm talking about in the, in the science and practice of humility because it's only when you sort of embody that, sci- that science of humility that you sort of have that, that awareness of the, you know, the ultimate, you could say, of the sense of unity in the universe, the sense of self in relation to the all. This is where a lot of it ar- arises from. And, and I believe that this was even understood um, back in – that Latin era when these words arose, because why else would they have these particular words? And, you know, this kind of understanding of science is also in relation to uh, Vedantic philosophy, which is basically the science of self-realization, except my book goes more into uh, the end of that science of uh, self-realization, which is actually the science of humility, because I believe from just not only my own experience, but from seeing um, being in the presence of masters or being in the presence of even just normal people who exude humility, that that's sort of the fruit of, of life in general. It's not only the fruit of spiritual practice, it's the fruit of just your, your journey through life should be leading you constantly more and more uh, to humility. I love that broad, broad definition 
um, inclusive definition of science. I know it seems to me like science has been a bit hijacked in terms of, uh, you know, the scientific method and focusing on data that's external to oneself. But, and that there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just a portion of the knowledge that needs to be cultivated. The inner knowledge is so important and very often science doesn't have very much to say to, to say about that, at least science as we understand it in the West. No, you're, you're right, Anne. It's um, science in the West, or classical science in general, um, sort of has no interest in consciousness at all, has no interest in the inner world. But when you look at the wisdom traditions or you look at um, the divination arts of, of Egypt and uh, Babylon, they their focus was on gnosis, was basically the science of uh, experiential knowledge. So they put much more emphasis on experience rather than calculating, measuring, um, and experimenting with uh, external agents. They put a lot of focus on the the inner world and the experience that we have. And, and I think that the advent of, say, quantum physics and new perspectives on biology and, and all of this that's happening at the moment is kind of moving in that direction as well because science are sort of coming to a we could say a point where they, you cannot continue to exclude consciousness from the argument because consciousness has to be included because fundamentally everything is consciousness. Without it, you know, we, we don't know existence. There's nothing that we can say. Uh, we couldn't say anything about life without consciousness, you know. There's, it's yes. kind of, it, it's very ignorant to, to exclude that from a scientific um, analysis. It's so true, and it's it's that old uh, research paradigm of studying what's external. That's that that's completely missing how the observer changes what they are observing. And when as soon as we get into that end of quantum physics, then it gets exciting because we realize we're creating what we observe. And I know you talk yeah. a little bit about that in your book. Yeah, I do. I do. I, I go into that in my book, and, and I and I sort of. I related to the ancient art of mental alchemy from hermeticism because why I, one reason why I did this is because I feel that sometimes the, say, the, the principle of law of attraction especially can be a little bit, um, a bit fluffy in a lot of texts and that, that we have in the modern day. I don't want to mention books. I don't want to mention sure. particular authors, but, but there, there's – not a deep understanding of it. And the thing with mental alchemy is when you, when you tackle mental alchemy is that um, it gets to the root of consciousness and how that for anything to be created, um, say if for you to sink in with the outer world and for things to happen, for synchronicities to happen, for reality, for the observer to actually change reality, there has to be a sense of almost emptiness within the individual as well, because otherwise it's just egotistical projections and we will, we'll, nothing is created that way because that's based on a field of want um, according to the relative being. When mental alchemy is more related to the Sanskrit word dharma or, or de in Chinese, which means virtue, which basically means that the more you refine your consciousness, the more you work on yourself and you begin to um, sort of comb out your uh, latent tendencies and habitual ways that have, have, have sunk their roots into your psyche, when they sort of have been combed out, then you begin to... Yeah, Dharma is actually the word that um, relates to the virtue, the mental virtue the virtue of the mental world, which basically means you clean out all of the habitual ways and latent tendencies in your psyche. And that principle of the universe, or, you know, call it whatever, what you will, Tao, God, or Brahman begins to work with our uh, work through you. Um, this is like, you know, artists have this feeling when they, when they paint or when they write, they have this feeling that they, they, they create something, but they, after it's created, they have a sense that, you know, that, they didn't feel like they were there creating it because it's a masterpiece at the end of it. Right. And this is kind and this is kind of the virtue of the inner world, which is Dharma. And that's really what the law of attraction, um, you know, is, should be talking about is this it. And so it should say that, yes, you can create your reality. You can, um, in a sense, 
the observer does change your reality, but at the same time, if you're not in sync with the universe, then nothing will happen. And so if it's just an egotistical projection, you know, a lot of books advocate that if you just wish for money, you're going to get checks in the mail. But invariably, this is not going to happen. So once you empty out, then, then you'll become in sync with the universe and then things will begin to happen with you through synchronicity and just, you know, the, the marvelousness of life. So we're going to pause right there. It's a perfect spot. We're going to go to a commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking more about the process or path to full enlightenment. This is Ann Gelsheimer with Conscious Evolution Radio, and we'll be back in just a moment. is the 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High definition, premier quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. You are tuned in to Conscious Evolution Radio, and we love to hear from you. Please send any questions or comments about the show via email to ConsciousEvolutionRadio at gmail.com. Again, that's ConsciousEvolutionRadio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. Hello, this is Ann Gelsheimer with Conscious Evolution Radio, and we're speaking with Jason Gregory about the practice and science of humility. So Jason, in your book, you mentioned that there's three phases that are part of the entire process an individual goes through on his or her way to enlightenment. Would you give us a brief overview of that process? Oh, definitely. The process is, um, it's, it's a three-stage uh, process, and Basically, the stages are the great work of eternity, the evolution of perception, and the science of humility. So basically, the, the great work of eternity, you could say, is, is the sincerity of an individual, someone who really wants to know themselves, someone who really wants to be engaged in, in self-work or, or spirituality, and they really have a, a, a yearning and a desire, a fire, you could say, inside them to want to know more about themselves, more about the universe and it's and it's and I don't want to say it's seriousness because you know we're too serious in the world. It's just more of a sincerity. It's more <laughs> honest. And then, basically, from that process, um, when you begin to work on yourself, when you begin to work on your conditioning, when you begin to comb out your latent tendencies and your habitual ways, naturally your your perception softens. And you know this is why I call it the evolution of perception because you begin to you could say. Retract, uh, retract your consciousness from the dramas of life. You begin to have an overview of really what's happening and your, your, your perception is not caught in the detail of, of the daily dramas, not only in your own life but in worldly affairs. And to, to best summarize this is like if you, if you can look up, if you can look at a painting close up, all you see is blobula. 
But when you begin to walk back further and further and further, what you see is uh, a harmonious pattern. You see something there that's um, on one level is chaos and on the other level order. And this is the whole, um, this is what the evolution of perception is. It's basically seeing that there is an order to chaos. And a lot of people, you, you could say that this is, um, you could say that contained harmonies in themselves, contained conflicts in themselves uh, are harmonious. And now this is not to say that we need to take a dehumanist perspective to war and all of this and that. But what this is, what this indicates is, is that if we had this perception, if we weren't caught in the daily dramas of our, our mind, of our beliefs and, and our conditioning, none of these wars or discord would happen. This is what it's all about. Because a lot of people get confused with this. They say, well, if I'm just not looking at the details and I'm just la di daring around, you know, how's that going to solve any problems? And it's like, no, no, it's not, that's not really what's being said. What's being said is that if you have, if you have this state of consciousness, it, it in itself um, begins to make things harmonious, begins to, um, you're not contributing more to the, to the, the destructiveness of the world. And what a sage realizes is that when you begin to see this order or this, this harmony that in the apparent chaos, is that because you don't have an agenda no more, because you don't have an opinion, because because you've worked on yourself thoroughly enough, that this should lead you to the science of humility, which is um, is the essence about uh, basically about what we've been talking about the whole sh- the whole show. And is basically that science, that untouchable um, trait of our consciousness, that virtue, that that flowers like a like the lotus out of out of Buddha, you could say, um, in Buddhism. Is it is this humility, and it's this, it's it's something that we innately all have, but for some reason we go through this process to realize it, you know. And that's why in Buddhism they say we lack nothing because we're already enlightened. But the thing is, we we go on a journey to discover this. It's it's a paradox in itself, but this is sort of the process that each individual goes through on the way to enlightenment and to realizing the science of humility. I've heard a, a really nice analogy for that in terms of our enlightenment. It's like the sun that's always shining, but there's often clouds in front of the sun. And so the spiritual <laughs> path is really, you know, just helping those clouds to dissipate and, and, and reveal the light that's already there. It's true. It's true. And then that's the work that we're all doing. You know, it's, it's you know, I've, I've been with masters before that have said, you know, you've got it right now. And it's true that you do have it right now, but the problem with that, direct pointing sometimes is that most people um are caught in the storm with like what you said they're caught in the storm the, the clouds are, are overcast it's full right. and and they don't know how to sort of start to to clear that start to let the spiritual wind blow those clouds away and you know that's where the great work starts and once the great work starts you the your perception evolves and then you come into the science of humility, and and at that point, that's that's where the um, the fruit of enlightenment is. And I was thinking just how challenging it is for our left brain or our logical brain to let go of those opinions and our attachment to figuring things out. And as you said in the book, our tendency to make things so complicated. <laughs> well, see, simplicities. The most difficult thing now in our culture, um, we we just we we recoil when someone says, "Look, you've got to be simple." It's like I don't want to be simple. I want to be linked up to my smartphone all day. Or I want to um, have music blasting in my ears all day. Or I just want to be busy. I want to be engaged. And and the thing is that that doesn't really do anything for your inner being at all because all that's producing is excess noise inside your mind and you're constantly not present. You're, you're always off in the future or in the past or even worse, you're constantly daydreaming. And so, you know, this is a problem in our world because, you know, we're, we have built a culture and a society where we're supposed to be attracted to complexity and not simplicity. But when we see a master or anyone who is sincere on the spiritual path, they always have this simple manner about themselves. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're simple. They don't have a lot of material acquisitions. It just means that they're simple in their mind. They've, they haven't renounced the world it, materially. They've renounced their ideas of the world in their mind. And this is what 
um, real renunciation is, and this is what um, I guess the the fear of the simplicity um, is in our complex world because it means that we've <clears throat> we basically balance our mind out a lot more and we see reality as it is in the moment much more than the way that we think it should be. So it's <laughs> the, the, it's enticing the idea of simplicity given how complex our lives are and full to the brim of facts and tasks, etc. What mm. advice would you give people just to begin to step into that simplicity and to let go of the complexity that's been built up? I'd say it's. I'd say dive into boredom. Like I know that that's. A, <laughs> I, like I know that. that's a simple. I know that's a simple sort of uh, phrase. But if you dive into your boredom and you really feel it out, instead of filling it, filling your your boredom up full of, uh, well, basically pacifying your senses in in that process, then you will start to engage with a deeper reality if you start to dive into your boredom, and then you know. In a sense, meditation is also diving into your boredom because most people don't want to sit for half an hour to 45 minutes in their daily life just sitting with their eyes closed in sustained attention or or attempted sustained attention. Um, Not many people want to do that. So I would say it's kind of a – I'd say engage with diving into your boredom and also engage with um, a particular practice of meditation just to sort of see if there is a deeper reality inside you rather than the one that we're told that there is because, you know, there is such a deep deepness to our being and and to the core of the universe actually. So, you know, dive into your boredom, explore it and don't continually fill your senses up full of stimuli. Start to, start to retract from that and very, and simplify your life in that manner. Because even if you do the littlest things, like say if you changed your diet, for example, or you changed or, or you threw your TV in the te- uh, threw your television in the in the bin. These small small changes would uh, be a like what Lao Tzu said: the, the first step, be- uh, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step, and that would be the one step. So take that first step and, and see how you and see where you go from there. That is so profound. I I work with kids who have attention problems. This is when I wear my hat as uh, in psychology, and a moment of boredom is very, very challenging for them. Uh, there is a constant uh, looking for something to do. And I'm not blaming them at all. I, I Honestly, I, I see that very much as describing a lot of our culture. Have you, have you ever worked with someone who maybe had ADHD and said, I can't meditate, I can't, I can't stand it? And any tips that might help somebody with that? I, I have. I have worked with. I've, I've worked actually with kids as well, but I've worked with adults who, um, I guess, they become more frustrated because they they have too many, I guess, um, glamorous ideas of meditation. Because I, I worked with one guy who said that he just he can't engage with his subconscious, and 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 I thought and I thought to myself, I thought, well, you're thinking about it the wrong way. So, um, and he was kind of. He was, I don't want to say that he had ADHD, but he was almost like that. But basically with him, um, was it was sim- just simplifying his life, taking a few things out of his life and see how, where he goes from there. And, and as he did that, what ended up happening was in the process of simplifying because he, he had an alcohol problem as well. But when he began to shed a lot of those um, habits and, and tendencies, he naturally was drawn to a, a completely different reality. He he bought a car and then he just began traveling around Australia and and he he went and just worked on farms for free and and it was just I you know that's just one example. But he engaged with the simplicity, but at at the same time he had a lot of struggles with the boredom and whatnot. It was really a, a time thing with him. It was just a um, you could say it was just a re-emphasizing of where he's going is is the, in the right manner and and that's what took fruit in the end but with children it's a lot different because with children we're talking about um they're brought into a world that's that is just um you know and i don't want to blame all parents but a lot of parents are not conscious of how they treat their children so they sit their children in front of television as soon as they're born and basically the agitated mind is is developing 
even when they're unconscious. So um, it's it's more difficult in that respect, Dan, when you're talking about kids because you've really got to get them away from particular environments that promote stimuli. And I, I found that with that with that example of the the adult man that I helped, it was basically taking him out of his familiar environment and putting him in, in an environment that he's unfamiliar with where a lot of changes began. And this is what happened. This, oh, sorry, oh, sorry. This is what happened with myself. Actually, with traveling, is I engage. I got out of my comfort zones. I went to countries that I didn't know anything about. I dropped myself in places like Calcutta in India, where the poverty is uh, brutal and things like this. But what happens is you begin to engage with a different reality inside yourself because you have to learn to adapt. You have to learn to um, not be familiar with your familiar stimuli. So I would say that you know. Every human being is composed of self and environment in, in some sense. So I'd say take, taking people out of certain environments and letting them feel and taste other environments will help them for sure. I certainly see that with the children that I work with. They begin to thrive when they're allowed to be outside. Uh, without, there's something very grounding and nurturing about being in nature that just helps so much. Now, we only have just a few minutes uh, to the end of the show, so I wanted to give you a chance to say anything you'd like to, but and also to tell people where they could get your book. Oh, definitely. You can get my book anywhere um, online through Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, Powell's Books, or straight from my publisher, Inner Traditions. Um, it's in bookstores in the U.S. and Canada and, and all over the place, so you, you should be able to find it or, or request it into the bookshop. Um, my website, if you want to contact me, is jasongregory.org. Um, I get back to as many emails as I can. And... Um, yeah, that's basically it. And, you know, if, if anyone's willing to dive into sort of what humility might mean um, in, in, in transforming themselves, but not only transforming themselves, but transforming the world, then maybe my books are, uh, might be a good acquisition. Well, I think it's been a wonderful conversation, Jason. I I find it had such a depth to it, and I know that we could honestly have gone on for hours. We just really just skimmed the surface in your book. But I hope it will uh-huh. intrigue listeners to please take a look at this. Um, I know I'll be going back to it and spending a lot more time with the book because there's so much substance there. So thank you so much for being on the show. It's just been a delight. Oh, thank you, Anne. It's been a pleasure. And, and like you said, we could talk for hours, but, you know, there's always another time. So Exactly. You know, and I, I do hope you'll come back again. That would be just <laughs> wonderful. So this is Anne Gelsheimer with Conscious Evolution Radio, and thank you for listening. Thank you again for tuning in to Conscious Evolution Radio. Please join Ann Gelsheimer for another great show next Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. We hope to see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.